is Guys Read Romance, where I, romance author Margot Radcliffe, politely strong arm my male friends into reading and chatting about romance novels with me for an uncomfortably long period of time. All right, today I'm chatting with my old friend Phil, who I have known since high school. He has gone on to obtain like uh, seven higher degrees in writing from Ivy League institutions. But most notably, when he was our class president, he took a poll of the cafeteria asking what each person would do if they knew the school was going to blow up in an hour or the world, maybe it was the world blow up in an hour. <laughs> when I, the, a future romance novelist, said that I would have sex, he would dismiss me and said that people would be too scared to do that. But as he traversed the cafeteria and eventually found his way back to our table, he apparently found out that most people said they would have sex. So Phil, here we are about to talk about romance and sex and love because it's the food of life and stuff. Phil can rant with the best of them, knows how to express an opinion, and I guarantee I am far too dim to understand most of what he'll say today, but I promise to try my best. So thank you, Phil, for taking time out to do this, and I'm excited to talk about romance with you. I'm excited to talk with you about any. <laughs> thank you. Do you want to tell, say where you published and where you wrote, what you wrote for? I'm going to stick with the alias thing. What I would do is what? Oh. So I wrote for the web facing side of one of the oldest magazines in the United States. Oh, right. I was at a newspaper, which I don't know, I guess serves maybe a quarter million people on a daily basis. And in the last 30 years has won, I'm going to call it four Pulitzers. We'll put it there. Oh, wow. All right. I'm sorry. You have to remain anonymous. Somewhat. Somewhat. <laughs> Wait, is it Rochester? Radcliffe. <laughs> Rutherford. <laughs> Rutherford B. Hayes. Harriet Rutherford. Harriet Rutherford. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Roethlisberger? Wait, which one is it? Radcliffe. Radcliffe. That's right. That's right. Roethlisberger. Am I a... That was just a prompter response. That was just to... to yeah. And then we'll we'll evolve towards rapeless burger at some point when my ire is right has risen. Yeah, that's a, that was a real bummer because I was into the Steelers for a couple of years, which I you know I'm not a sports person. And then the culture thing where we're from. So yeah, yeah. he but he ruined it. So I don't oh, should we tell people I'm black? Like that's going to be a thing, right? Say what? We didn't say that I'm black. No. <laughs> like no, and I'm totally white on the phone. So like you have to be clear about these things. <laughs> white on the phone. My maternal grandfather gave me that one. She doesn't know that I'm black. Like <laughs> my papa, she doesn't know that we're black. That's true. Does that matter? I, I guess it would matter to this conversation going forward. But I don't know if it's something I needed to I'm say. Gonna make, I'm gonna make Radcliffe so uncomfortable over the course of this. <laughs> Mind blowing. I'm gonna drag her kicking and screaming. Back to the 90s. Oh, my yeah. goodness. We're not going to have to go back to Africa, but we're going to have to go across the Caribbean Sea like a couple, three times. Like, I mean, it, it's I'm usually wildly uncomfortable, so this will be quite a journey for me. Yes. All right. As long as I'm on brand, because we didn't have time to do that sort of synergy work ahead of time. Yeah, we'll be good. We'll be good. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. So, Phil, anything else you wanted to say about that? I have some. Yeah. Tell me about what you typically read, because you read a lot, I assume. So let's yeah. talk about that. So the last thing that I bought was a book yesterday. It's a new 
well, not new any longer. It's a book of essays that Zadie Smith published. Oh, yeah. Uh, it uh, will, I believe it's called The Intimations. Um, mm -hmm. And it is a post Me Too publication, so I can only assume. And that's why I got it for a discussion with my class that's reading on beauty. Um, oh, right. oh, some context on me just sort of as an educator. I've taught sixth grade to grad school. Mm -hmm. So. I generally try to do things in a way that can be broken down and brought back up. You'll remind me when I need to break things down further. Yes. Um, maybe give me even like a grade, like tell me in the sixth grade version, like, or something, because I okay. probably Sounds need that kind of a reminder. Sounds uh, good. This is not an AP class. This is sixth grade. Yeah, I need that. Let's okay. remember, remember sort of traditional heteronormative tension is all about that idea of needing to be corrected in some way by the person that you desire, desire you. Um, right. That figures pretty strongly in this text as well. Okay. All right. I do not want to be ever corrected. Is that a thing that you think that women, well, we can talk no, about it. I mean, I think it's certainly something that, you know, Juanetta gains you know, in terms of Daniel's attraction to her with that very first repudiation as to, you know, is she slacking on the case as far as her Russian translation is concerned? Or is she cagey enough to realize that evincing ignorance, like showing ignorance to these Russians is in fact a tactic and a worthwhile one, right? And so the yeah. idea that he would sell her short, right? And say, you know, she's not thinking of this because she's such a greenhorn, you know? And then for her to correct him, you know, and to draw that line between spycraft and womanhood, right? That mm -hmm. she's been engaged in performative femininity, just <laughs> engage in other sorts of performative ignorance, right? Oh, I just don't know what to do with this crescent wrench that has only one dial on it that either opens it or closes. And I couldn't possibly reason my way through such a complicated binary, huh? Which way does it go again? Is it getting tighter or is it getting looser? I can see it with my eyeballs, but I don't want to know what it means. Like, my right. man. My all right. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. We'll get back to that. But tell me, all right, you read, you're reading Zadie Smith. <clears throat> That's a good one. She's wonderful. I try to read good ones, you know. Yeah. All right. So do you think that you're, you typically read literary fiction as a rule? or? No. I mean, I probably mostly actually read news the most. Okay. I read I read news copy more than I read anything else at this point. Gotcha. All right. So nonfiction. Yeah. And then a lot of like media sociology, just because that's what the bulk of my like PhD course of study was in. I did not write my dissertation, people, you know, I'm totally okay with that because I get to teach. If I didn't get to teach, I wouldn't be okay with it. And I'd probably be obsessing about it. Okay. So your ABD is what you're trying to say? Yes. Yes. Okay. What did you have a topic? I should get a school to pay for it at some point in the future if I want to, Tara. Stop. Get that worried fucking look off of your face. If I want to write this dissertation, a school will pay me to do it over three summers. I'm probably. not worried about it at all. I think it's. She's, she's totally lying. She's. <laughs> she's looking at roughly the affect of a concerned aunt. It's fine. It's fine. Though. <laughs> I, you are attributing feelings to me that I don't, I, like I am not, I don't have the energy for. So I, I really, okay. I don't. Totally doesn't care, guys. <laughs> I can't win. I can't win. Whatever. I, you're right. I don't. I don't care about anything, really. I can't oh, win with this man. Can't win. All right. So why haven't you up until this point read romance? Other than when it was assigned to me in a class in undergrad. Yes. Um, it doesn't do what I want to 
do when I engage with fiction. It's it's not engaging with the questions that I like. I like I like like Borges by the waters of Babylon. Like I like like <laughs> Asimov short stories and Bradbury and uh-huh. Octavia Butler and like not all sci-fi. Although the fiction I've read over the past decade has been like half sci-fi probably. Hmm. Vin, yeah. I had a big Larry Niven period like. Uh-huh. That's the ring world guy. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I think because the questions I want to ask are like, are we going to get off of this rock? Like, what, <laughs> like, what problem does the next generation need to solve? Like, what does my son need to be concerned about? You know, like, how hopeful can I be about the future of, you know, mankind that seems so cyclically riven by the same recursive? Oh, there's a sci-fi uh, anime, Gundam Waltz. No, Gundam Wing Endless Waltz, where like the repeated motif is mm-hmm. the three beats of human society, you know, go on forever. War, peace, revolution, war, peace, revolution, the endless waltz or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, you know, there's no reason to think that we'll free ourselves from it. In any case, my means of engaging with those ideas are more likely to be sociology, news, or science fiction. So I guess that's what I would go I watched quite a lot of Gundam Wing. Oh, I cool. I don't know if I watched that. Is there Are there different ones? Because I don't know if well, I It was one movie. of those three-parters, like OVAs, that like functions as a movie as well. Oh, okay. I don't even know. What does OVA stand for? I don't even know, but that's what it is. Right. Okay. Well, so you're looking for something to reaffirm your hope. And but romance you're saying that romance wouldn't do that for you? I mean, I'm divorced, I guess, on one level. Um, on another level, I don't know, is there romance that's written for, you know, for black men who like white girls who are like ten years older to five years younger than him and he's middle aged or you know what I mean? That's that's weird. That's difficult enough to find in male porn, right? Like, I don't know whether I'm gonna find it in like literary erotica. I mean, I think that I look at it was but she has curly red hair and she's caramel skin but you know she has that look that makes you think maybe her great-grandmother was irish and you talked to her a little bit about lacrosse in maryland in the 1980s and i mean it's just it would have to be so specific for me right <laughs> and then she watches like highlight tapes of larry brown like winging in another you know double digit performance in the 1960s and the classically segregated sport of lacrosse she looks over at you with her steel gray eyes and she says oh go on my brethren like i'm like that's so specific well, um, listen, I think that you're hitting on something interesting here because you are asking for like very specific character or like women or men. But I think that like the tropes in romance are so broad. I think like I've already, so I'm working this job and I'm 19 and I'm stocking books or something. You don't think I haven't already thought about fucking my 45 year old manager? Like I've already done all that work. I don't need it like described to me at length in narrative. I've already broken that ground just as being like a man in this society who was socialized in the 80s and 90s and who blah, blah, blah. It's like, I don't need a book to do it for me. Cause like, I've been watching that lady walk up the street bouncing at me for like 30 yards. Like I've already... That's already done. I don't need a book about it. And that, like, she loves classic video games. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's what, like, if I were going to write for, like, a heteronormative man, it would be, it would be 
Ready Player One with more sex, right? It would be about this demographic and like you were eight years old when you first played Russian Attack. And so you thought of the Russians in this way and you met this girl, but it's kind of a new world. And maybe in this alternate reality, we had a different relationship, you know, in terms of like Sino-Russian, like choosing of your main enemy and the Cold War went slightly different. And so that's the thing that you're like thinking about the what ifs of yourself. And I mean, that's why Ready Player One is is popular, even though it's not good, right? Because it's it's zooming in on the particularities. So Fight Club as well, right? Whether you're talking about like Polaniak in the in the text, or you're talking about Give It to Me Now. Who who directed Fight Club? David Fincher. David Fincher, yeah. Well, okay, but getting back to this, yes, I understand what you're saying. So you uh, you're a in a, a boy in a, a boy in a bookstore fantasizing about your boss or whatever. But that's in yes, romance novels are fantasy, but it does take that to another level, does it not? I mean, like you've thought about a story in like five minute increments two. as your. I've I've only read two. Okay. No, I read a lot of Sweet Valley High one summer in Jamaica. <laughs> um, uh-huh. And I would read anything when I was a kid, absolutely anything. So, right. I, I mean, I don't know. That's clear if you've read Sweet Valley. Yeah. But well, what I'm also, go ahead. I mean, I was like 10 or something. So a kiss was enough climax for me. Yeah, 100%. But what I'm also saying is that when you're, when you have those very specific and we can talk about this maybe later, but like a very specific type of girl, like that is what just now what romance is coming around to doing. Because right, romance used to be the busty lady and the Fabio man, and that's what romance was. The other one I read was it had yeah. the yeah the traditional Harlequin like jacket and right. But um, so now we are actually kind of changing that. So I think when you're saying oh, I need to have this very specific thing. I think that that could be out there some at some point. Like we're we're really exploring like what it, all of these different, very specific types of, of people. And I think that it's interesting to see how it, like how it's going. You know, all of these, there are like, I've talked about it in this podcast before. There are main male characters who are, you know, overweight or uh, are neurodivergent or all of these things. So like, this is expanding. It's, it's an exciting time to write romance and read romance. So don't count that, that particular, what you need out just yet, Phil, it might be out there. You know what I mean? Okay, sure. (laughs) All right. So we are going to is there any other reason why you didn't read romance? Do you want to keep going on that? Or are you done? It's not expected, right? Like this book, I wanted to tear the jacket off of it, like to read it on the subway you know? <laughs> or in the dentist office or like at the barber shop, yo, at the barber <laughs> shop. I can't read this at the barber shop. <laughs> and I want to be clear that this book we're, we're talking about is uh, An Unconditional Freedom by Alyssa Cole. It's got a decent yeah. jacket on it, but it's just clear he's supposed to be hot. It's clear. Yeah, it's That's like a... A very tame jacket. It's not yeah. like a naked woman. It's just a man in a suit. It's unbuttoned. <laughs> it's unbuttoned. <laughs> it's unbuttoned. That's the problem. It's pro- like if it were buttoned up, then maybe it's like a Horatio Alger like like time period where it's just like it's like, and then his his industry overwhelmed them. You know, his <laughs> his smithy was the most efficient in all of East Boston, right? Like, and, then, and his best friend Crispus Attucks burst into the room and he said. He said, Daniel, I need your help immediately. The Sons of Liberty require, like, you know, the Black Elks to appear immediately. Like, our tradesmen have been called to the cause of the new America. 
<laughs> what? That's what it would be. And that'll be fine. People let me read that nerdy ass book. Like they'd be like, look at this dorky ass Negro over here reading that shit. All right. How you want this? You want this? You want this tapered in the back, man? Would you would you put your book down, man? Come on. <laughs> let me get this apron on you. Put the book down. I can't get the apron on, man. Oh man. Okay, but just okay, just to say that even the button was enough to embarrass you in public. Not like- one button, it's three. Four. <laughs> You cannot see anything. You can it's barely. If I glanced at that. I wouldn't know that his shirt was open. All the way down. Then, then they sort of obscure the terminus. Like, does it go to his happy trail? We don't know because we got a plaster super serif. An unconditional freedom. A novel is civil war. Yeah. They, I like the novel though, right? It doesn't say like a sultry exploration of interracial sexuality. Right? But isn't it not interracial? Because she's just Latin, and we know the Latin people, a lot of them have African extraction. Have you been to, you know, South America, young man? Have you been to the Caribbean? Uh, well, I, I like that in a way, the author, the thing I like the most and the thing I like the least is the sort of, the set of contemporary presumptions. Like at one point, Daniel talks about how he knows his privilege, right, as a freeman, right. And that is just so anachronistic. There's some military terminology early on. I believe somebody says, like, check your six. And I'm like... I mean, while they had clocks, nobody was saying "check your six in. They had clocks. out of it now. All right. Well, we'll come back to that. That's a good point. But first, we're gonna play. All right. This is a sex scene game. I'm gonna read you two passages, and you have to guess who wrote which one. Like, if one was written by a man or if it was written by a woman. Does that make sense? I really botched those directions, but you get it right. <laughs> I'm going to read two. One was written by a man. One was written by a woman. You have to guess. Does either use the word turgid? No. Oh, that's, that's, that's disappointing. I know you've been waiting for it. That's what we all wait for in romance novels. (laughs) Get older, you'd be waiting longer. If what? I said, as you get older, you'll be waiting longer. Or will I? Will I just get, go younger? You know what I mean? It's, It's hard to say what I'll do. Here we go. Are you ready? I am indeed. Fantastic. All right. My head thudded against the glass, heat pulsing through my blood from the point where his tongue was driving me mad. My leg flexed against his back, urging him closer, my hands cupping his head to hold him still as I rocked into him. That's the first one. Are you ready for the second? Sure. The next morning, she is recovered. His prick is hard. She takes it in her hand. They always sleep naked. Their flesh is innocent and warm. And in the end, she is arranged across the pillows, a ritual she accepts without a word. I mean, I think the first is a woman and the second is a man. But I will say the second, until the midpoint, it felt like a woman was writing it. It's just that and this matter of ascent being a matter of like the geometry of the pillows, like assume the position that felt. That felt very heteronormatively masculine to me. Mm-hmm. All right. Congratulations. You're correct. Okay. The first one was Bared to, Bared to You by Sylvia Day, a very popular romance author. And the second one was oh. um, A Sport and a Pastime by James Salter. Oh, they're supposed to be like a semi-serious author, right? Like a sort of like Pat Conroy sort of character. Yeah. Well, good job. Uh, so the book we are talking about today is, like I said, An Unconditional Freedom by Alyssa Cole. 
Some information about the author. She is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of romance and thrillers. She is the winner of the 2021 Edgar Allan Poe Award for the Best Paperback Original and the Strand Critics Award for Best Debut. She won the American Library Association's Best Romance for 2018. Um, one of her books, A Princess in Theory, was one of the New York Times 100 Notable Books of 2018. Her books have also received critical acclaim from the New York Times, Library Journal, BuzzFeed, Kirkus, Booklist, Jezebel Shondaland, Vulture, Book Riot, Entertainment Weekly, and a lot of other outlets. So she is a very celebrated author in the romance community and beyond. So very, I was very excited to read this, this book. The description is Daniel Cumberland, born free in Massachusetts, studied law with dreams of helping his people, dreams that died the night he was kidnapped and sold into slavery. Daniel is rescued, but he is a changed man. When he's offered entry into the Loyal League, a covert organization of black spies who helped free him, he seizes the opportunity for vengeance against the Confederacy and those who support it. When the Union Army occupies the Florida home of Cuban Janetta Sanchez, am I saying that? You don't think I'm saying that right? Don't she, says, she says Juanetta. Juanetta? The audiobook reader says Juanetta. No. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Like my own, there's, there are a couple of Juanitas in my family. It's supposed to be Spanish for Janet, mm. according mm -hmm. to what I was able to find out. I don't know. Okay. Janet. Sure. We could Janet? just call her Janet. Well, that's clearly what, no, we're not going to call her Janet. <laughs> yeah, I didn't say that. <laughs> I know you didn't. I'm going to call her Janet. <laughs> but so the audiobook said Juanetta, but that's not the. Uh, should I play a little bit of it? Maybe. Hold on. Chapter 23. Hanetta willed herself. Hanetta. Hanetta. That only a few minutes reminded her of how strong she was. I mean, I could see that. Hanet. Hanetta. Yeah. Okay. Hanetta. All right. I'll go I'm with it. How poor my Spanish is given where I live, but in any case. <laughs> All right, well, we'll go with that. Cuban Hanetta Sanchez, daughter of an enslaved woman and a plantation owner who married her. Her family's wealth does not protect her father from being imprisoned. Under duress and blaming herself for the arrest, Hanetta agrees to infiltrate a group called the Loyal League as a double agent and finds a cause truly worth the sacrifice. Daniel is aggravated by the headstrong and much too observant new detective he's paired with, and Hanetta is intrigued by the broken but honorable man she is tasked with betraying. As they embark on a mission to intercept Jefferson Davis and thwart European meddling, their dual hidden agendas are threatened by the ghosts of their past and a growing affection that could strengthen both the Union and their souls, or lead to their downfall. Yeah. As individuals and as, you know, representatives of the union and the, um, uh, what's the group called again? The League. Yeah, yeah, the Loyal League. Yeah, it's layered. It's uh, layered. Which, of course, our hero doesn't like this sort of genuflection before Lincoln, which is fine with me. Lincoln wasn't really, you know, an abolitionist, but yeah, he was. neither did, I don't know, neither did the time call for him to be an abolitionist. The time called for him to resolve the issue of whether or not you can secede from a country like the States, like, and you cannot. Yeah. Anyway, so I wanted to do like a brief thing on West Virginia to sort of situate. Sure. Okay, so myself and Radcliffe are from a place. No, that's wrong, isn't it? Rochester. No, you got it. You got it. Oh, okay. 
So Rachel myself, is the hero in, in Jane Eyre is the man. Yeah, in Jane Eyre. I, he's, he's no, it's the dude. It's Mr. Rochester. Um, yes. Yeah, who's blind at the end. I kind of like Jane Eyre. No, I really like Jane Eyre, but we're not talking about Jane Eyre. You do. I really hate Jane Eyre. We'll talk about it some other time. Go ahead. I've never been locked in a red room. Anyway, so. Um, mm, West Virginia. West Virginia is interesting altogether because it's the only state that seceded from the South. I can remember being particularly, I mean, you're always particularly upset by racism on the individual level or race hatred on the individual level. But I remember as a child it being particularly ironic that, you know, I grew up three miles from the place where they signed the paperwork to secede from the South mm -hmm. in 1861. Independence Hall, is that where they signed it? Yeah, in, in downtown. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was really weird how many Confederate flags you saw in a state that so deliberately had no economic benefit from slavery and therefore seceded because there are no plantations on mountainsides, not because they thought like black people were people, but just why would they die for plantations when there are no plantations in any of those counties? Sure. And the idea of people broadcasting their ignorance of the roots of the state's identity, you know, like we're the Ohio, like the guardians of the Ohio River. That's that's a much more like legitimate identity. We're the descendants of deeply loyal and tribal and suspicious Scots-Irish people. Um, and I will say that's on my West Virginian side as well as my West Indian side, because it's the same people. And you'll see when we talk about, you know, the little girl who's whipped for learning to read and she's writing in the dirt. The overseer that comes over is coded as a Scots-Irish overseer. And those are the same people that ran the plantations in, what am I looking for, the Tidewater? Whatever that region is in um, Virginia, where most of the plantations were, and mm -hmm. also in the plantations in the British West Indies as well. That's why my, that's why I have, I'm a descent, direct descendant from two Scottish clans. Hmm. And, uh, the Campbells did precisely what um, Haneda's father did, which is to say they didn't have legitimate offspring but they either raped or finagled or harassed their way into the beds of these people they presumed to own such that, you know, I'm a direct descendant of the people who were enslavers. And yeah, and that's just what the deal is. That's, that's who you descend from. And to the extent that any person of African descent isn't fully African, right. we have white blood and it's usually the product of assault. And sort of codified assault, the expansion of your property in many ways, because, you know, it's not just a rape. It's also going to make money whenever the kid's born, because then you can sell the kid or you can leverage the kid against keeping the mom um, around or more loyal. So, yeah. And so that puts Hanetta in this position where she's not even aware of what it means for her to be, you know, as the term is used in the text mulatto, having both African and European and indigenous, not both. She has three, right? Indigenous, Black, and Spanish, I guess, in her case. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of people in the States, too, who have a blend of indigenous blood and European blood, mm -hmm. African blood for the most part. So. Yep. All right. Well, so is that why you picked... The first question is, why did you pick this book? So did you kind of... So I looked at... There was another book that we were considering, and I don't know, something told me that I would be able to get into this one easier. 
I think maybe I read the beginning and I heard that he was, his father was a blacksmith or something. I was like, oh, so they're going to use like knowledge as like a lever in this. And I think I can kind of get into that a little bit more, Mm -hmm. but I may have been misperceiving the other book, right? It may be as simple as, yeah, I don't know what the cover of the other book was. Maybe I just picked it because this is just a dude with like an oil (laughs) lantern, right? Dude, oil lantern. Yes. He's unbuttoned to the navel unnecessarily, but it's hot in the South. So we're just where they are. Uh, I mean, yes, fine, <laughs> fine, fine. There's also a lot of mosquitoes. I, I don't know. Yeah. You know, you gotta, you gotta pick your battles as a guy outside. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, so I actually would still like, I would like you to do this again and, and read that other book. That was the intention with the other book, but oh, I, okay. I gave oh. you that original list Yeah. Um, and you picked two of them. So yeah, so all right. So this felt you you related to using education as a stepping a stepping. Yeah, and that's very British West Indian in and of itself, like this idea of revering the trades. Okay. Fair enough. So what were you kind of talked about this before? Um, what were your impressions of the cover, the summary of the book? What were some of the feelings you had about it before you started reading? I I hope it isn't cringe. I think that's all. I just was like, I hope it isn't cringe. And it was cringe for different reasons than I expected in the end. Uh Um, And it wasn't as cringe as I expected it to be. I mean, a lot of it's the anachronism. A lot of it is sort of, you can't do every kind of code switching. And I think the temptation in communities where code switching is fundamental to one's identity, um, and I'm making vast assumptions about Ms. Cole's life here, but I will assume she code switches quite well between Black communities of North America and white communities of North America, right? And mm-hmm. if that's the case, then the weak spot is going to be the Latinx depiction. And I think that that holds kind of true here because mm-hmm. I do have a notion of the reaction to Daniel's difference, like morphologically, his skin, his scars, his size, right? Like all of that is very much coded from a perspective that feels like a white woman to me. Okay. I was a white lady for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, Sure. All right. So when you look at Hanetta, the way she behaves with respect to Daniel, with respect to the image of her mother, her black mother, right? Mm -hmm. The level of ignorance of her own race is, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the author bends over backwards to emphasize the fact that her mother wanted to differentiate her from the rest Mm -hmm. of the black enslaved community there on the plantation. Yes. Distance herself as a formerly enslaved woman who had given into this, let's say, an opportunity, right, for a love match, because this between her and, you know, Hanetta's mother and father is described as a love match, okay, mm-hmm. but one that is advantageous for her and one that necessitates the separation of her daughter from the Black community. I mean, I think Cole almost gets it done, but it still, to my ear, sounds just like she's more acquainted with how white women look at black men and she's mm-hmm. just painted that on top of Hanetta to me. Okay. All right. I, I mean, but Hanetta, I think that she thinks to a certain degree that she is white. I mean, do you not get that sense? I mean, that's the impression I... If you can believe yourself to be white, mm-hmm. I guess you will. But that's just OJ Simpson saying, I'm not black, I'm OJ. That's well, kind I... of a willful delusion, right? I agree, but don't you think, isn't that part of this? That like, she was safe if she was white? 
So like that delusion is helping her through, like her mom kind of forced that her into thinking that, right? To a certain extent. She's always hearing out of the, the side, of, you know, like when she goes to that camp, it's like, we can't allow a woman like her to be this close to the troops. And when she chastises that general and says, well, this just means that you can't maintain order among the ranks. No, it's about the sexual availability of, of black womanhood to, to white men. It's, it's about, she's been walking through this world coded as someone who is seen as black through the eyes of certainly the enslaved people, like look after her and take care of her. And the implication there is it's not only through their affection for their mother, her, their affection for her mother, but also between that, that kinship that comes with being seen by the most powerful audience members in this analogous way. So whether or not she was aware of it or not, like the white gaze was there and 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 it was a willful it was a willful act on the part of her parents and and it, she participated in it as well and it solves an authorial problem, right? So I I don't know. I don't know. It's as a writer I'm so sympathetic to Cole because it's such a difficult thing to do because she also she needs to have Daniel say I had class privilege at some point, in a sense, franchise the perspective of the novel unto that portion of like the contemporary audience, right? Here I am acknowledging the fact that intersectionality exists, that in fact there's a separate line here for his skill, for his middle classness, because his father owned his own business, because he had his papers, all of this, the big lesson. Solomon Northrup, right? We've, we've seen 12 Years a Slave. This is something that happened to people, probably thousands of people, but it solves a very important authorial problem. <laughs> and I can't take my eyes off of how advantageous it is and how convenient it is to have Hanetta's ignorance, you know, be the way that it is. And mm -hmm. for, you know, Daniel to so, you know, sort of bald-facedly sort of proclaim that he had privilege when he could have said like, I hid behind those papers or, you know what I mean? Like, but instead, very realistically, they've got this bitter guy who's like, and those papers were, were nothing like, and, and I had them. Like he's, he's concentrating on the sort of indignance of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, when you have to know that I think a lot of freed folk, maybe the most of them were, would have had to be so intensely paranoid. I mean, you carry that piece of paper with you everywhere you go and it's paper. Yeah. It can get, yeah. it can, mm -hmm. you know, have lemon juice splashed on it at, at the tea house when you're listening to the announcement from the, whatever yeah. they used to read. There's no lamination in the, <laughs> back then, you know? Key point, key point, <laughs> lamination <laughs> technology. <laughs> yeah, I, but listen, I think that, I think that Alyssa Cole, I, I understand and I, I agree with, with the Latinx part being the weakest, but I, on top of it all, though, this is a romance, right? She's doing all of this stuff and she's still writing what is a pure romance and doing a great job of it. So I I think she's done a lot here. I think she did a fantastic job. I think that's why she's so widely recognized because she was able to, in the midst of one, educating white people in a way that... Who is for? Who's reading this? I mean, everybody. I mean, I think that it's mostly a... I think romance readers are, are like, they're women. They're all different races of women. So I think that... And her, Alyssa Cole specifically, is read by a lot of white women. Okay. And a lot of black women. And mm -hmm. a lot of Hispanic, so... Okay. 
she really i mean she's very 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 popular i'm glad yeah so all right so leading into this next question then uh and it i did cringe some parts it was some of it was cringe i agree with you on that okay but this book very obviously deals with the very serious subject of slavery I feel like i'm like i don't mean to it, it was not bad. It was way better than the only other romance novel I ever read, right? Oh, so. that was, you said it earlier. What was the other romance novel? A regular, like, off-the-rack Harlequin that my professor had, like, in a box that we picked from for our, like, project for Psychology of Women. Okay. Um, so it deals with the very serious subject of slavery and aesthetic against the backdrop of the Civil War. What did you think about the tone and how all of that was handled while still focusing on the love story? Did it feel, how did it? Yeah, I mean, that stuff felt, I think, fine. I was interested to learn about, I mean, I knew everybody in Europe was sort of standing off to the side trying to figure out what's going to happen before really committing, right, to one side or the other. The thought was that the British would inevitably back up the Confederacy because they just, as cold outlines in the novel, capably um, for their textile industry, right? You just need a lot of cotton to run the textile industry in England. Um, But I didn't know about the Russians, sort of that perspective, which must have existed. And then obviously the tumult that Russia was going through and the sort of fall of the czars and Mm -hmm. I guess the decades preceding the fall of the czars, which I don't know enough about. Or I shouldn't even say that. I should say like the house, the house Romanov. Mm, yeah, the Romanovs, but through like those last generations of it, obviously they would be interested and they would be watching. Obviously, you know, other, I don't when Brazil couldn't have had emancipation before the Brits and the States, right? So Brazil would have been a slave state still, I, I, right? Yeah. I mean, we still have sweatshops in New York right now as we speak. We still have, you know, sex workers who are, sort of offloaded from the opioid crisis to truck stops all over America. Like, I'm not trying to say that enslaving people is dead or something like that. But I mean, at this point, the world was watching to see how this enormous economy was going to sort this thing out. That's all. So like, I think that what, how it was dealt with, I think the history was interesting because it was presented in this way where there were these cultures and these perspectives and these differing motives that were all being weighed um, mm-hmm. and presented focusing on Russians early on and then on sort of the institution of the iron side as like a technological advance, you know, the idea that, you know, you have to pay off Hanetta's knife throwing, the idea that you have to, I don't know, like they were dealing with a lot of things, you know, what, what does a tomboy look like in, in Cuba, right? (laughs) What does a tomboy look like in Cuba? Uh, I say that because I I listened to the Audible for a lot of this audience. (laughs) And uh, because that's how Immortal Technique pronounces it in the uh, Poverty of Philosophy, which was a video I sent Radcliffe in advance of this, because it examines the same economic pressures and racial hierarchies in a post-colonial frame, right? So much later, looking at the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and sort of the tumult in Central America and the Caribbean. And then I'm drawing this line back sort of directly to these new post-slave societies Mm -hmm. era, like sort of generally that you have a, a perspective of separation between Jamaica and Haiti and Puerto Rico and Dominica, well, not Dominica, well, 
Like Guadalupe had like 16 different slave revolts and they would kill all of the Europeans on the island. Mm. And then they would just send more with more guns and take that <laughs> Guadalupe. And sometimes yeah. it was the French, I think. And sometimes it was the English. I think it was mostly the English. The Jamaicans pushed the Brit out, the Brits out and the Spanish out multiple times. But you yeah. don't have, you can't have that much gunpowder because you don't have gunpowder and they're just going to keep bringing gunpowder. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, somebody should write a romance about Nanny, who is this historical figure in Jamaican history, who was hmm. a woman who ran the Maroon slave revolts. Um, the Maroons were the Arawak and Taino natives of the Caribbean. Being a woman in Jamaica. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I probably can't write that, but I will bring it up to some other people. Do you? Do you? It should be nanny. Should be matchmaking and like sort of watching over the community, like like with a matriarch eye, seeing love. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. I like it. I like it. Did you find in this book? Did you find the dialogue realistic? And did you think that that was how people talk to each other, like generally and then specifically? No, the- no, no, no. But again, like that's sometimes that's not the project of your work. Sometimes the project of your work is, you know, to be more dramatic, to present goals and tactics. And, you know, as you say later in some of the prompts, like the shifting perspective, like that sort of mosquito focus, third person narrative, where you go from the mosquito on the ceiling, overseeing the group to the mosquito on the shoulder, giving us the specific position. It's something Smith actually works with quite well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I, I've i been happy to see or my limited perception of it in the past 15 to 20 years. There's a lot more of that plastic third person, whereas mm-hmm. you go back and you read Updike or you go back and you read even more traditional contemporary, like Joyce Carol Oates is still like, there's a lot of just that third person removed, mm-hmm. I have God, which is good as long as you can go back to certain presumptions about the Protestant work ethic or about gender dynamics or about, right. you know, the erotic nature of, of black athleticism, which Mizzou has a whole thing about. My favorite arts critic also is Lindsay Ellis, who got banned for dumb reasons, but oh. she does have this thing where she starts talking about Will Smith or she starts talking <laughs> about, you know, like black men in this way that I'm like, there's, there's something there. I don't know what the thing is, but but like there's something there where she's not entirely comfortable with talking with me in the room and it's okay. Like not every white woman is comfortable with me talking and like being in, in the room in that way. And, mm-hmm. and God it doesn't change the brilliance of, of her criticism. Um, right. Jack London, Jack London thought I was like an ape and like tried to chase down Jack Johnson. Like it doesn't mean shit. Have you read like the animal perspective in his work? I, I don't know that any writer has ever done animal perspective better than Jack London. Sorry. And maybe, maybe, you know, books about dogs aren't like that deep, but can you do that? I don't fucking think you can because I've never seen anybody do it. Make a dog a character. Fuck you. You can't. I feel like I could pretty well make a dog a character. I mean, like what, I mean, like what about Clifford, Phil? What about Clifford? The big red dog. Too long since you've read Call of the Wild and I've taught it like, like a billion times like no you can't next question <laughs> <laughs> did you um didn't he write, didn't he write white thing yeah as well? okay mm-hmm. that's the one i've read i've not read call of the wild 
I've only read White Fang. Well, if you've read White Fang, then you know what he's doing. White Fang is a little bit more. Box open and sticking his hands inside of him. I remember. The the problem is that White Fang is about PTSD, right? So it's not. White Fang is like abused and like beaten into. Never mind. I read it in middle school, Phil. These are. These yeah, are well, that's when I read The Good Earth, and I still have my Pearl S. Buck. Where is your London, Radcliffe? Where is your London? It's in the in the trash. It's Next your own private London. It's in the trash. I get it. I get it. It's no Paddington. Um, <laughs> Clifford. Oh, right. <laughs> All right. I can't, I can't shift our sign. Okay, fine. It's fine. Say what? I can't shift our sign from K9. You can. You can do whatever you like. All right. So did you feel that there was true chemistry between Daniel and Hedda? And did you believe that they were in love? I mean, there was chemistry, but the presentation of love, I mean, again, it's like, you know, he pulls your pigtail because he likes you. Like, okay, I get that dynamic. You think that was their dynamic? He was like being mean to her because he liked her? No, but... A lot of the sexual tension came from like the practical tension. And then the suspense of when is he going to let her know that he knows that she was sent, sent to spy for the, the sons of the Confederacy, right? And you knew that he was going to drop just because it has to narratively. So I don't know if, if they had gone through different. I mean, I liked, I liked some of the cornies, like when they're on the iron side and they do the whole like, you know, flash falls on Gal Gadot, like, oh, I've fallen on a woman and and the woman is curvaceous, but I am in the moment and I'm a practical man and this is about defense. And so she pulls her derringer and we plunge on. Like, I mean, yeah, it was cool. It was cool. Uh-huh. And I try to get her to move back and she says to me, I'm your partner, right? Like, it's cool. Like, it's like, it's a little buddy cop and it's a little pulled her pigtails and, you know. Mm-hmm. All right. So you, okay, so those kind of traditional romance tropes worked for you here, even... Listen, man, I, a fairy tale has, you know, like a structure and it, it like functions in a certain way. And a lot of sci-fi functions that way too. Like you can keep the reader in mystery for the first quarter to a third, but you'd better start to make some linkages so we understand what all this stuff means because you don't pay it off before, you know, the midpoint, you're going to lose everybody. And then you've also got to connect it to some epiphany about the nature of humans that will change or won't change. You can pick either, but it needs to be one. You know what I mean? Like that's how we tell stories. So yeah. sure. All right. It sounds good. But you're saying you, d- you, the kind of chemistry worked for you. You felt that they were falling in love. I mean, I felt that the romantic tension was rising, but I think that's different for me than like we've written a story where people fall in love. Okay. I mean, like at the moment, like the moment before consummation, like she, she, she like admits that she thought she was better than black people. Like no shit. Like the entire society is constructed around convincing everybody who isn't enslaved that they're better than people who are like, Uh yeah, dude. You, she presented that to us in the first 20 fucking pages. Mm-hmm. So, cool. So. Like, I, I like it fine. I, I think I, wait, when, I, again, can I, am I trying to decide whether I liked it or not? As an example of romance, I vastly preferred this to anything else I've had any exposure to. But as like somebody who grades fiction all the time and reads a lot of fiction all the time and spent his entire life reading a ton of shit, like, 
and making, you know, abortive attempts at my own work at various lengths over decades, right? Like, you know what I mean? I wrote my first novel when I was like 13 or something. Like, I'm not, like, yeah. I get, like, I get your plot arc, dude. Like, Oh, yeah. No, that's not a mystery. But I guess my 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 question centers more on is the authenticity of the portrait of love in here in this book. Does that do you find it to be authentic? Do you like because I, I don't look if I want to know what love is, I'll read like Abigail Adams letters. Right. Uh-huh. I want to know what love is. I'll reread A Midsummer Night's Dream for the 103rd time. Okay. If I want to know what love is. Are you going to say Ernest Hemingway here? I'll read Ethan Frome again, even though... Ethan Frome? You need to die on a sled, Phil, to feel loved? Well, I mean, like, I don't need to feel the inside of her thighs on my abdomen or something to feel it. Like, I don't know. Like, all of that's sort of by the by. Like, sex is so separate from love for me that the sort of formulation in a romance novel... And again, I'm not... I don't think this is entirely being like divorced. Like, I think it's just, I've always had really high standards for human emotion. All, mm-hmm. You know, unreasonable ones. Ones that are, you know, at the core of my central enemy or uh-huh. dislocation, you know, as a person. And the, like, it's just not where I would look for, like, that's why it strikes me more as erotica. Like, I would jerk off to this more than I would, like, define it in relation to love. To me, I don't know that yeah. it has anything to do with love. Yeah. It's too, it's, it's, it's like too... It's like two cards in a deck saying they're in love with each other. Like I dig, I dig the Jack of Spades, like, and like I dig the, you know, the Queen of Hearts, but like, they're just icons. Like you could have shuffled them differently. You could have played it back to front. You could have, you know, let's get some fucking chess pieces in there and like go crazy with like our (laughs) icons and representations. But like, no, I can't read love in this any more than I read love into porn. These are professionals. Like this is this is an execution of again this frisson and this tension across racialized lines, class lines, lines of what is just and isn't just. What power can force you not only to do but to believe to the core of yourself? Fine, and those are great and exciting ideas, but not a fucking one of them has anything to do with love. Okay, that's interesting because I've been hearing this a lot. So like, but when we're talking about, yes, these are two cards in a deck or whatever, but like these are characters that have been drawn very intimately. Mm-hmm. What you're essentially seems like you're saying is that these characters didn't resonate as real to you because like otherwise you would be involved in their and their emotional journey just like you are with the characters in a midsummer night's dream. Is that the Yeah, one? but genre characters these are people that engage on the same first three tiers of like a potential depth of seven for the entire text. That's all. Like I've gotten into as deep a conversation with one night stands as they get into over the course of this whole thing. That's just fact. You think? Probably a half dozen occasions. Oh, fuck yeah. There have been times where I thought it was going to be a, a one night stand and it's just the, the woman naked, like crying in my arms in like a hotel in Toronto all night. Phil never bangs. She's just crying. She's just crying. It was going to be a one-night stand. It was going to be great. It was going to be great, Radcliffe. It was going to be great. But until, no, she's processing her best friend that murdered themselves. Or it, It's an individual thing, okay? And what I'm saying is these people don't know each other. They don't love each other. They desire one another in the same way that I desire a clerk at some place that I walked through once. That's the entire depth of it. Well, okay, well, so like what then is this missing what is the seventh level any knowledge of each other it's missing any real knowledge of each other 
they she confides what she told us on page 17 in him at the end of the text how is that supposed to satisfy me she already she'd been told me that she ain't told this motherfucker till now and he's like licking her like you know saucer nipples and shit like come on man 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 well but i mean like so that's just one I went to deeper levels with women like that I never kissed than these people entirely through this text. As a matter of fact, also many times. Uh huh. Okay, but like just because she didn't tell him that one thing didn't mean that they weren't intimate on other level, other like intellectual. They learned to trust each other's judgment. They learned to respect each other's skill set. Yeah. The level that I get through at a job orientation with someone at a big, big box store, like. Ten days in, me and Julio know each other like these two motherfuckers. <laughs> Black as shit, man. It's not love. It's not anything like it. It's not anything like it. It's not even. It's not even deep knowledge of the other person. It's not even deep depiction of one of the, the characters. This motherfucker does not distinguish himself from a trailer of Solomon Northrup over the entire text. He's wounded. He has PTSD. He doesn't trust people. Okay, I like the reveal of how they knew, right? Because. You know, the servant class is overlooked. I learned that on my paper route in 1995, that people will come to the door half naked or beat their wife in front of you because you're the paper boy, you're metronymic, you're the postman, you're not a person, you're not really there. I get it. So yeah, they were there, they overheard the plans and they heard about this hot Latin lady who's going to do this thing for the sons. Like, it's just, I could have done this shit in a short story. I could have done this shit in, I, I don't know, man. That's where I'm at with that. As a piece of genre work, it functions in leveraging sort of character descriptions to ongoing tension along similar and enduring axes, fine. Um, as far as peppering it with at least what is adjacent to historical fact, fine. As far as the ambition of depiction, depicting true intersectionality, fine. But none of it was, yeah, it was done at a level that a 15-year-old white girl would apprehend immediately. And so that's what it is. All right. All right, Phil. What? Fair enough. I I'm will... disappointing you. I'm totally disappointing you. I'm You're sorry. not disappointing me. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to figure out what dudes think is intimacy. And if it's not appreciating somebody the way that they do things, how they act, how they are, who they are as a person, maybe I don't know what knowing somebody really is. Because like, do I think this is to a certain extent a superficial understanding of each other? Of course, it's one novel. It's like over the course of three weeks. But like, do I think that you can fall in love with someone in that amount of time? Maybe. But, like, it's just interesting to me to hear. Like, Love at First Sight is almost more realistic than this. Really? Yeah. Love at First Sight is so stupid. All right. Okay. But humans are stupid. <sighs> All right. All right. Well, moving on. In your opinion, was the sex satisfying or well-written? And was it what you were expecting? I mean, what you're expecting, but again, I do think, as a guy, it's kind of cool, like, for it to be words instead. I don't know. Like, can you pedal that? Can you pedal just like a scroll of words that like is masturbation fodder? Like, I don't know. The one time I read too much Borges and uh, uh -huh. I went in text, like in like a Star Wars crawl, like a uh -huh. red Star Wars crawl. Yeah. And that was my dream. It was just me reading text in the dream. Uh -huh. so maybe you could sell that. Maybe. The weirdo. I, yeah. It, you wanted to be on a screen is the issue here. Is that what you're saying? It has to be like... Oh, it has to be one-handed? I mean, it probably would have to be one-handed, wouldn't it? 
That's what they call some romance novels, one-handers. Okay. You know I, mean? I don't know like, the physicality of diddling, but it might allow for more turning into a text, whereas the physicality of working off is very much outward. So like you're gonna lose you're gonna lose the book. Like you're gonna be drifting, you're gonna be craning your neck. You need to be able to splay a little bit more. And if you were with somebody for that many years, you've seen a man jerk off before. So I'm not gonna <laughs> that you haven't. Yeah. Next question. Next question. <laughs> the physicality of diddling was was great. I really enjoyed it. That's what I'm here for. That's what I'm here for. So, okay, so was it so was it satisfying to you, though? I mean, you were like, you were into it. When you use the word satisfying, it's just like, did you climax? I didn't climax, no. Uh-huh. That's not what I meant, but like, okay. that's so, fun that you took it that way. What about satisfying would it be? like? I mean, do you, did it? Have more of it? Like, if there were yeah. another scene afterwards that were like that that one, then yeah, I would have read that too. There's just one in this book? Anyway, no. there weren't a lot. Henry isn't supposed to be, I mean, it wasn't played as erotic for me. Yeah, it's really just the one, t- the first time Hanetta and Daniel make love. was struck me as hot. I did reread it. So. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, but I guess the quite when I see your highlights, your highlights are nice. I just saw them now. I didn't notice them before. Thanks. I'll, um, I'll let my stylist know. It's cute. It's cute. So, well, I guess what I really mean is, like, was it when you thought about reading sex, did it deliver on like the tittle, like whatever you thought? Everything that you're saying is coding for climax. We got to talk about it. Does it's not? It's not. It it's didn't not. quite deliver. Okay, Radcliffe, it didn't quite deliver. It's no, but I'm I'm not. That's not it. But like, of I'm trying to say that before you read a romance novel, yes. you had an idea or an assumption. No, of- but that idea was like I read that book when I was 18 or whenever I showed up in college. So that's when, or when I read the Sweet Valley High books when I was nine, and I, or my mother had a ton of Harlequins around when I was a kid, and I didn't read any of them, but I got the idea that an intelligent woman would go through them like tissue because she had like hundreds of them sons of bitches. Um, and she had all kinds of Reader's Digest condensed books. I read my mom's Reader's Digest condensed books like a motherfucker, though. I'm getting that you like the sex, and that's great. But I, uh, my overall question was just like, we all have this assumption of what romance novels are. They're, they're ripped bodice. The, the guy is you know, kind of a rapey fantasy. And all I, as soon as I heard about Nora Roberts, I knew that wasn't the case. And that's going to be, what apartment was I in when I heard that? That's going to be 2006. I hear about Nora Roberts for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's what we're trying to dispel here. Like, this is not about, like, dudes. This is a shared experience of sex in these novels. That's all. Yeah. All right. Last question before we go to the categories here. So this is written in third person point of view from alternating kind of perspectives. What did you think about the switching? And you kind of briefly talked about this earlier, but... Did you think that it, I mean, I find that this works in stories where you kind of have these, like, two main... No, I love it. Didn't you hear how I, like, ripped into Joyce Carol Oates earlier for not being able to do it well? Yeah. Yeah. You know. No, I think it's, I think it's really versatile. I think it... Right. But you, but I'm trying to say that this creates an intimacy for us to the characters, does it not? That I don't necessarily feel in non-romance books a lot. I oftentimes am in a Joyce Carol Oates feel very, very far removed 
from the characters, even though I might have more in common with them just generally. Mm-hmm. I buy that. All right. So I think that's why this functions in, in romance so well. All right. Going to these quick categories, we're done with the question. So what for you was the hottest moment? Mm, there's another contender. Hold on. I mean, hottest moment. And not just because they're in Louisiana or whatever. But um, Are they in Louisiana? At some point they are, right? That's where that guy mm-hmm. is? Okay. Yeah, after the boat. Some of the linguistic stuff is like cutely hot. Uh-huh. I mean... You know, when Hanetta, when Hanetta first curses, that's kind of hot. Okay. That's interesting. What what about that is hot? Like a breaking of the rules type of thing? Like I mean, it's more like it's a meeting of him halfway. Like he's oh. trying to get he's trying to get her next to the idea that the level of physical control, the whipping post on the plantation, the the whatever, like it transfers to her and it transfers to her mother, and it is not it's it's not how Papi loved mommy and it's not it, it can't be divorced from the rendering of people into objects of wealth extraction and that particularly the generative aspect of you know the potentially life-causing aspect of the sexual act and the fact that it creates more property for the person in power that that you know, to get her to question the relationship between her father and her mother is signified in that sort of playing on his terms. Like it's the first moment when she changes her approach to language, which is her major lever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, her major tool set, her major tactic in achieving her objectives as the deuteragonist, the secondary protagonist, right? So mm-hmm. um, yeah. I'm going to go with the first time she drops the F-bomb. Cool. All right. And uh, on top of that, what is was the sweetest, most romantic moment to you? When he wakes up sleeping on her, like using her as like a pillow, like okay. the night on the iron side, mm-hmm. right before the attack, that was. And the sort of, I keep saying for some, but like, like the, the tension that that causes and then it's diffused, of course. And this is another thing, like when you're reading authors who clearly were raised on cinema right and so mm-hmm. when you have a scene like that where you put up you know put a pin in that that tension right now we've got we've got to shoot bad guys i like that i like i like feeling the movies that the author has seen i like that was a sweet moment and then i feel like most romance novels are cinematic they all you know, you don't watch a movie and I mean, you're not surprised by the structure and the plot of a movie really ever. And so, nor am I surprised by anything that happens in a romance novel, right? So there's that kind of familiarity, but also like it's most of them are dialogue driven. So they feel kind of... And that is, I like too. I liked when I was going back to sort of fill in the gaps after having been dependent on the recording for a while. I like the fact that you could kind of skip through the dialogue and sort of get the whole thing back in your head, mm-hmm. but that's because the interiority is so repetitive, right? Pause. All right. What was your biggest objection? Um, objection? Yeah. Just anything, anything that you generally objected to. I just didn't, I didn't buy anything about the Latinx like depiction. I don't know. And maybe it's because my kids demand that I be more specific in sort of understanding intersectionality. Mm-hmm. Maybe because 
I've been, I don't know, I've just been teaching and researching things like this for a really long time. As, as often as I misspeak and as many things as I've probably said, which are horrible in this conversation, a certain amount of offense is necessary for a certain level of discourse. And I very much always tell the kids that like, who's offended by this? Like someone should be offended by this because there are a number of assumptions that are at work in this text that are about sexuality, that are about identity, that are about the sanctity or sort of centrality of the hyphens of a Lithuanian American as opposed, you know, to a Cuban American as opposed to someone who identifies as strictly New Yorkian versus someone who identifies as Boricua versus somebody who identifies as Puerto Rican because they immigrated in the 40s or 50s or whatever it is, right? So those were your biggest objections. Anyway, what was the most relatable moment to you? Um, I mean, actually, the way Hanetta code switches. Okay. Because she's very conscious of the audience that she's speaking to, the sexual threat that they pose. Right. Um, the Latin that she occasionally even utilizes, right? In mm -hmm. addition to Spanish, in addition to Russian, in addition to, I mean, she doesn't do a good, she's not good at speaking in, in, in a sense, like the language of her own mother, the language of the labor class of, mm -hmm. of black Cubanos, mm -hmm. but, but she's pretty, she's pretty awesome. Otherwise, linguistically, actually, that's hot. Maybe that's the, the hottest thing is Hanetta knows a bunch of fucking words, man. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, that's good. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, I think that she, I mean, part of her her skill set was was knowing who to be around certain people, right? So That's part of every woman's skill set. A part of every queer person's necessary work to survive, you know, but well, and then speaking about like kind of building on that, what do you think was the biggest lie or misconception about men in this book, if there was one? I think, I don't know, maybe not. I mean, the problem with engaging with sort of like heteronormative masculinity is that some of the power play stuff is there. And I don't know at what point you can separate the extent to which it's a product of culture or a product of biology. Mm-hmm. That's a tired old thing, but testosterone does make you aggressive. Like your sexuality is more forward facing and agentive. Mm -hmm. And whether or not you believe that's an echo of the sort of sacred yoni, like phallus dynamic or not, may be a different question. The extent to which it can be repatriated into anything useful, the useful, anything useful, you know, useful or worthwhile, um, it's kind of another question. I don't know. So in this, Final question, really in this category, what was the biggest thing that you think you took away from this book about women and romance? I did not extrapolate anything from this. <laughs> nothing. Absolutely nothing. I, I know women is why I wouldn't do that. Say what? Like, I just feel like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I just, I would, I'm very hesitant to draw any larger conclusions about it like this is i mean what do i learn about men from reading you know the novel serialization of endgame like i don't know probably not a lot but like you didn't learn anything about what women want from men from this book to be seen as an equal is would that be the thing that would be great yeah that would be good yeah i don't know and I mean, I guess in the dynamics of a romance or a domestic partnership or a whatever that, I mean, I think most modern relationships are most, it's not like you expect, I mean, I cooked like every night during my marriage, uh -huh. but if I were the girl, I probably wouldn't have been as messy or I don't know. I'm the little brother. 
And that's the big thing with my big brothers. He's the clean one. And I'm the messy one. I don't know. Right. What extent can you remove yourself from these roles and these? Yeah. I don't know. I would almost want to say reflexively, you know, most guys my age do see women as equal. Half of our bosses are women. Everything we learned in the businesses we're in, the stability of our families depended upon, you know, matriarchy in my family existing on both paternal grandmother and maternal grandmothers. Those are the people that like sit in state at the family, whatever, the people that you kneel next to and you ask for advice, the people who you bring the baby to, you don't bring those people to grandfathers and fathers, fuck them. Like, I mean, not fuck them. They have their own authority and set of presumptions and things that go with that too. But yeah, like culturally, a lot of things at the family level are dictated matriarchally. Though in my own household, my father like ruled with an iron fist. So that's sort of kind of different in my experience. I guess I just don't see, certainly not at a conscious level. I think, like I said, we're reenacting these roles to a certain extent with our system of expectations mm-hmm. and you end up into those roles depending upon the nature of the relationship. But given that this is such a brief acquaintance between these two people who just it through time, like <laughs> the presumption of gender aren't really explored that much. I mean, she does have a little derringer and she does throw knives. Those aren't I mean, it's cool that she's not, you know, running around with like a 12 gauge that like would knock her off of her feet. Like that would be unrealistic. But it's also like I've seen a lot of Victorian, you know, heroes from steampunk to, you know, Enola Holmes to whatever, like who can kick your ass in a a skirt and they do good judo because they're paying attention, right, to how a woman would handle herself in that situation. And she would use leverage and she would use quick stabby weapons and. I like, I don't care what people say about Arya Stark. Like I kind of buy it. I like she's working, she's working with a foil for years. She can kill you with a foil. You are a bag of water. It kind of makes sense to me. She did spend years going to like ninja school where she was taught half by another woman. I I, I don't know. Like I kind of buy it if it's, if they're magical, the getting stabbed and falling in raw sewage, not so much and being cured by a a theater lady, but the fighting style, I think they paid attention to in the, in all the right ways. We won't get too far off into that. Don't come for Aria, Phil. Let's not do it here. I'll fight for Aria until the day. Okay. Thank you. Uh-huh. So um, I appreciate some of that stuff, but is it is anybody freed from these sets of expectations? And then I want to turn to you almost and say like, wow, I don't know. I feel like a lot of modern relationships are caught up in the same dynamics of the 50s, but it's sort of just given like a, a feminist like spin. And the feminist spin is like, you know, I've read my Gloria Steinem and I'm telling you, Robert, that this is not okay. And I'm putting my foot down. And it's like, like that wasn't the situation. That's not the situation with men who are in Gen X and millennials. That's not what's wrong with them, that they're assuming you're going to cook and clean. What's wrong with them is that the world was broken for their entire adulthood. That's what's wrong with them. You're right. The, those traditional 50s things that we think of as like uh, the gender roles and whatever that we think of as oppressive to women, that's not at work in mo- in our modern relationships. No, I don't think that's how women think. But I think there is an element of if we're equal partners, which we aren't, which I mean, like, whatever, I understand that you cooked every day, but like, I'm I feel certain, and this is my bias, of course, and we can argue it or whatever, but I feel certain 
that you, if we asked your ex-wife or whoever it is, your partner, that they, they would not say that the work was equal in the home. Like regardless, somebody, was, somebody's doing more work. And, most and it wasn't because I didn't give a shit about that shit. And that's a different thing than me abdicating some sort of arbited responsibility. That's me saying I fold my shirts in the morning and iron in the morning on the way to work. And I'm not going to fucking fold them. Mm-hmm. And that's a different thing. Uh-huh. But sure. But I'm just saying the work is not equal. However much we want to say that it's equal and it's more equal than the 50s. Sure. Still not equal. Like I, Why don't you just not care about it and let it whatever. And that's the problem. Yeah. Or at is- least that was my problem. Like it was just like, God, I got to go and see your family again this weekend. And then I got to come home and hear this shit about why I didn't already iron my clothes in advance for the week. And then I got it like, it's just like, it's not fucking worth it at the end of the day. Sure. It's not fucking worth. I will never live with another human being. I will probably never love another person other than my ex-wife. And that's <laughs> fine for the purpose of co-parenting. It makes us much more in alignment as co-parents. But I don't get anything out of still loving her. And I don't get anything out of, of love being defined as such a, a contractual thing and whatever. I throw money at it to cover it up. Because <laughs> No, seriously, because sometimes really all they wanted was a check, but sometimes they need more or sometimes whatever. But you sort of have to make your peace with the fact that, or at least in my case, you want the absolute best for these people Mm -hmm. and whatever extent it's possible, you're going to do that. And if it hurts you, you're going to do it and you're going to hurt them because you're going to fail in all your own stupid, what, messy or addict or, you know, whatever the issue is with your experience and and maybe this will be this sort of double generation of men who just didn't get it done. And, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, and this is how the right comes up with this idea of, you know, the discourse that's out there. It's like convincing people. Well, no, it's just sort of becoming more of a community of women that are like, it's not fucking worth it. And if you have your community of people saying it's not fucking worth it and everybody defines it culturally as not being fucking worth it, then it's not. It's not. And that's okay, too, as long as there are still children and economies and, you know, institutions that will maybe put us in alignment for a future generation. But I don't think so. I think that we're just going to see a redefinement of what a relationship is. We're going to have a lot more two apartment couples. We're going to have a lot more people who don't get married and have one or two kids. And the kids from the very beginning are going back and forth between the apartments. That's probably what's going to happen. And that's kind of okay because marriage was a property you know, arrangement originally. And I get that too, but I do think it in many ways is the death of what, you know, this genre is dedicated to because men are much, I don't know, some men sometimes healthily are capable of a kind of unconditional love that I think is less common across that line. You can do something to a woman that will make her not love you. There are many men that you, it would not matter what you did to them. They would love you. They would die at the end of the movie. They would jump into the sun. That would be the thing. That's Ethan Frome, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the sled. But listen, I get, and I guess that's what I'm trying to to get at here is when you say love is like not a contractual arrangement, like how do we get? And like that's the the beauty of these romance novels, right? Is that that kind of who's going to make dinner never enters into it, right? So like, how do these romance novels? Of course, they're not realistic in, in, in a lot of ways. But like, 
what I'm trying to get at here is that is there something in these novels that is communicated to do to dudes that says like, hey, this is how we want relationships to be, or like this is how women are we, ideally are we trying to like design a better man through like media. Is that what we're doing? <laughs> Like a weird science situation. You can do that through, right? No, I'm not saying there's a that we're trying to design a better man, but like, are we way that women are communicating about the types of relationships they want seems to get lost in translation? And as you said earlier, tell me, tell me what I was supposed to learn, and then I'll be able to respond. We fell right into it. It's perfectly illustrative of this whole thing. We fell right into it. Fell right into it. I, you know, there are a lot of things, but in this romance novel. (laughs) (laughs) It's a moment of levity in this like deep failure of masculinity that I'm engaging with at this moment. We're sorry. We wanted to be better partners. We tried our hardest. Fair enough. Yeah. But I'm saying, I'm saying I don't know, but I like the conversation of like, how do we communicate better about the things that we want in a relationship? Because really that's like the issue, right? How do we know about that? Like my brother's always trying to tell me there's no such thing as unconditional love. No, I don't think so. Okay. Then don't bother. Uh, That's why. then Then it's just, we're just what, when you achieve symbiosis with another mammal, with whom you can best balance out your caloric labor allocation for the day. I'm not interested in that. No, but that's companionship. Like I don't need that then. Then you're, see, I'm satisfying my deep need for interaction with the human right now. And I can go out and meet somebody to fuck. So then technology's obviated the need for our tradition. We're just getting back to this. So I will have parasocial relationships with my friends at, you know, whatever, Oxford and, you know, uh, Monash in Australia, right? So I have that community of like nerds and the other people who I, you know, I would have gotten my PhD with all over the world. I have another layer of friends who I formed bonds with at particular moments of vulnerability and development. My theater friends from high school, my other black friends from high school, my family members I shared certain traumatic whatevers with. Okay, mm-hmm. another tier friend in college, another tier friend in the professional world. You stop making real friends as a man before 30, probably. Mm-hmm. So as long as you're able to maintain access to those like deeper relationships, mm-hmm. I mean, it's all becoming like less and less persuasive as far as this mythical equal partnership where I make up my bed every morning in exchange for being dragged to visit people who are related to my beloved whom I don't like. It's just, it's becoming this thing. Now I'm telling you, like, it's a real thing. And maybe it means that the emotional labor that a heteronormative man engages in is onerous and that that is what he feels he pays in the relationship. And it could be that for 45 minutes at the end of every night while the kid is dropping toys and the husband is forgetting his laptop in in the foyer and, you know, he switched maybe he does the apps or something but in in that exchange where she's going from the main to him doing the apps or whatever and the kid making the mess she expends an additional 139 calories every night over 43 minutes on average and that's not worth a warm body that smell you recognize that's form and declivity in the mattress you recognize whose sexual proclivities and peccadilloes are deeply known and mutually enjoyed, that all that stuff adds up 
and it's, you know, there's tire tracks in his briefs again. God damn it. So we've argued ourselves into a potentially good future in a Ray Bradbury novel, right? Mm-hmm. But I would say that we have to redefine labor allocation within these relationships because otherwise disorganized, absent-minded professors will always be divorced and ne'er-do-well, largely online Appalachian men of general description will fall short of the mark. Mm -hmm. And we will never even have the appearance of stability that previous generations had and successfully brainwashed successive generations towards many productive aims by virtue of these domestic conquerors. I don't know. I care about these questions. Like, um, <laughs> Phil, but you know what it sounds like you've said to me here is that you are a hopeless romantic. That's what all of this. Absolutely. Sounds like. 100%. But I don't know. What I'm saying is, is that the lie that marriage could work or is worth it. Like when you meet a couple that's been married for 50 years and you know this dude was, you know, on coke for seven of them. And you know that she slept with her boss in like 86. Like, you know, pretend you're an adult. Pretend you work with these people. Pretend, you know, they're your great aunt and great uncle. And you have that access to that. When you ask them if it's worth it, they say yes. I, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. They do. Those people, however statistically small they are. Right. Because they believed it. Right. I get it. They, you, we all have yeah, to believe, it. believe in Vishnu and some people believe it. My son believes in like the Greek gods. And I'm like, dude, do it up, yeah. you know, toss the sticks in the air. See if they tell you anything, man. <laughs> just as good as evangelicism or just as good as anything that can impel you towards some sort of consideration of oneness, as I said, like, yeah. I, I don't know. So it's funny. I don't know whether they're saying exactly the same thing or exactly the opposite thing. Maybe is the mark of a good conversation or at least a good podcast host. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. I think we're saying different things, but I think what overall we are both saying and believing is love exists. And if you just believe in it, whether what it, whatever it looks like and whatever weight we carry, whether it be lopsided, right? We have to believe. How the fuck are you going to edit this into anything? It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be awesome. I do feel like I have one more question. Did this book change the way you previously thought about romance novels? I guess, yeah. Because I'd never read them one that was like this. Yeah. yeah. Although I imagine Nora Roberts like this. Like, really? From the description. I mean, I know she goes longer, but I just mean as far as it's like, like, um, uh, like the show in Scotland with like all the excellent crochet work. I don't know, Phil. I don't know. Outlander. Yes. Outlander. Outlander. Yeah. So, so the specificity of time and character and whatever, so that your own connection with history, you know, whatever your connection is with notions of antebellum South or the expansion of the slave trade through the Caribbean, right? Like there's that hook that's there and whatever your understanding is of those dynamics is at work for you. And I think that's a good tool to draw readers in that specificity and that cleaner linkage to real history. Imposing a very general knowledge of these historical eras, again, just as I picture like a Roberts writing mm-hmm. or as you know, I saw a Cole. Cole. Oh, a Cole. Um, I think that that can draw the reader into the extent that they're aware of or interested in the, the time period. And I think that's a really cool tool to have. And I hope this turns into something usable for you, I guess is what I'm going to leave you with. Yes, Phil, I have one one more thing. Thank you, first of all, for doing this. It was amazing. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. And I want you to know I wasn't uncomfortable at all. So there's... <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow.
Dude, okay. So, Listen, live your truth. That's it. All right. So also, <laughs> Phil, so there's only one thing left to do. Tell me that you love romance. I love romance. Wonderful. Thank you.